All right. As the kids head out, if you would, take your Bible uh, and turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Or if you have your phone with you and you have access to, to the Bible on your phone, feel free to take that out and open up a Bible app and look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The Bible, generally speaking, has, has two halves, even though they're not divided exactly 50%, 50%, but it has two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It begins to tell the story of Jesus and his ministry and the impact of his life. And so we're in a series of sermons looking at the book of Matthew what I want to do this morning is specifically look at what happens in the book of Matthew after Easter. Because there is material after Easter. Pastors always worry about the week after Easter because you have all the people come and all the people disappear and you wonder what happened if you did a really bad job and those sort of things. But we remember that life for the believers goes on after Easter, but that doesn't mean we move past Easter. It means that we live in the power and the meaning and the implications of Easter. What was true about Easter last week is just as true today. The reality that Corey talked about earlier, that God's power and God's grace and the salvation that we celebrated last week remains just as true today. And we want to see what did it mean for the people to continue to follow after Jesus after he came back from the dead. If you would, stand with me right now. We'll get the adult wiggles out and we'll read God's word together. So stand in honor of of the reading of God's word if you would. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 28 verse 11 and we'll read down through through the end of the chapter. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. As we get started today, I want to show you a picture up on the screen. Uh, What do you think that picture is any good for? I know the writing is extremely small and there are lines going everywhere and you may not even have your best glasses on. Let me show you what that is actually a picture of. That right there. So the previous picture was all the inner workings, these diagrams, and this is the reality that most of us walk up to. I have a problem in life, which is, I have multiple problems in life, but one of the problems I have in life is I have a terrible habit of overcomplicating things. 
of making simple things more complex than they really should be. My high school sports coaches, it just drove them crazy because they would say, Owen, stop overthinking this. Just, just do it. You're thinking about it all the time. Why do you think about it? I can't go to sleep at night because I think about things. Some of you live in that world. We're just head cases. We can't help it. We overthink things. We're constantly, things are running in our mind. Last year, after Easter, I introduced us to a phrase that could be used by our church to kind of explain who we are as a church. If you take that worship guide, that bulletin that you got when you came in, and you turn it over to the back, there are some notes and and some phrases that will help us as we go along. But for the last year, we've been saying that First Baptist Church, that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. Proclaim is what we do with our words display is what we do with our lives, and Jesus is the focus of all of it. So we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. And then I added three tag words on there. We do that supremely, fully, widely. And you know how many of you remembered those three words? The same number that commented on my pink shirt this morning, which would be one. That's about how many people remembered supremely, fully, widely. I like the words. I thought they were great. They're just too complicated. They're not working out. So here's what we're going to go with. Scratch that. We exist to proclaim and display Jesus up in out. Up in out. We're just going to say that over and over again. It means the same thing. Supremely means Jesus is greater than everything else. He's up. So we live our lives up toward God. In is fully we're, we're developed in, we're, we're developed in our lives and our relationships with one another. I think you even have some arrows to describe this possibly. There we go. Isn't that better than a chart? A picture with a couple of words is so much better than a chart. So we're developing up toward God in our lives are being transformed and they're being transformed inside and yet we realize that's not the extent of our Christian life. We live it out. We live it out toward others. If what happens inside of us and in this church building is all that represents our Christian lives, there's not much to it. And so we live it out. So everything we do is up in out. We worship, we become more like Jesus, and then we go out and we live it out in our lives. Hopefully that's simpler And a picture says a lot more than that chart did that we went with last time. Same concepts. I want to show you in Matthew 28 where those concepts come from. Where up, in, out. How it comes out of Matthew chapter 28. So if you go back there to verse 11. It says, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. In other words, the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money. They're paying off the soldiers, which is interesting in light of Judas being paid to betray Jesus. Now they're having to pay off the soldiers to have them tell a story. And they said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, I realize many of you here, because of where we live, many of you work for the government, so I don't want to make too many bad jokes about working for the government, but you can tell the soldiers here work for the government, because they are either going to have to say that they were incredibly inept, that they were at the tomb, and somehow these disciples, these fishermen and and tax collectors, came by and got past trained soldiers to be able to steal the body, Or, 
it says, you are to say to them, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If they were asleep, how would they have actually known that the disciples came by to steal the body? Because you can see the situation they're being put in. Kids, if you're in third, fourth, fifth grade, even in the middle school, there's a lesson to be learned here. If you're going to make up a story to tell an adult, don't let someone else make up the story for you. All right? So if you get in trouble and you need to get out of trouble, make up your own story for crying out loud. Don't let somebody else make up the story for you because they'll run away when you start to get in trouble is the way that it, all, it always happens. So you have the situation of deception. They don't want people to know what's happened with Jesus. And then down in verse 14 it says, if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. You know they didn't really mean that. They're just trying to say that. So they took the money, the soldiers did, and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, meaning up to the time that Matthew's gospel was written. Then look what happens in verse 16. But the 11 disciples, remember not 12, because Judas has gone his own way. He's actually even dead at this point. So there's only 11 of those core disciples. They proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Mountain is a key term in the book of Matthew. There's the Sermon on the Mount, there's the Mount of Transfiguration, and now here at the end is this mount where Jesus sends his disciples, where he meets them and sends them out. And then verse 17, which has to be one of the most surprising verses in the Bible. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, But some were doubtful. It strikes us as very strange that here they're standing in the presence of Jesus, who they knew was crucified, and now has come back to life, and it says that they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And even that word some may not be exactly the right translation, because the word, the original word that we translate some there is just a very vague pronoun that could actually refer to all the disciples. So you could equally scratch out some and write in they, and you have this idea that they worshipped, but they were doubtful. And if you've grown up in church, you realize that the church, the Christian church, has not always done well with doubt. It's not always done well with doubt. There's a story told of how Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, who was the late CEO of Apple, as a young teenager, went to his pastor, he was going to church at the time, went to his pastor and had questions about some of the misery and the evil that he was seeing in the world, and his pastor just told him not to worry about those questions and to go on, and Steve Jobs had nothing to do with church from then on in his life, and in fact went many different directions in his life, uh, philosophically and, and religiously. That may have been some of your experience along the way. Oftentimes in church, when people bring up difficult questions throughout the years, pastors or priests have just said, pretend that question doesn't exist, or we don't ask those questions around here, or don't worry about that question, just just believe and everything will be okay. But then you see Jesus here, he meets them, and they worshiped, but they were doubtful. How do we make sense of this idea of doubt? One of the things I think that Matthew is doing here specifically in this story is he's contrasting what happens with the disciples here with what happened with the soldiers earlier. In verses 11 through 15, the soldiers and the religious leaders, they were deceptive toward Jesus. They weren't trying to worship Jesus. They weren't curious about Jesus. They were just destructive and deceptive. The disciples, even though they have doubts, 
they still continue to follow after Jesus. They still remain curious. They want to know what's going on here. And so Matthew is showing us two different ways that people responded to Jesus after the resurrection. Some wanted nothing to do with him and were out to even lie about what had happened. Some just had some doubts. But they were continuing to follow after. They were continuing to find out what's going on. Something interesting in the book of Matthew is that the word worship and the word doubt, they show up together one other place in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, and I think we have these verses on the screen. I meant to put them up there. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Same exact word that shows up in Matthew 28. Why did you doubt? And then look what happens. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat did what? Worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The two places in Matthew that the term doubt and the term worship show up together, Matthew 14 with the story of Peter, and Matthew 28 when Jesus is going to send out the disciples when they meet him after the resurrection. And it's easy to look at the pastor and say, man, that would be nice to be a religious leader and just not have any doubts. Can I just be honest with you? That's, that's not the case. I, I have all kinds of doubts. The more I learn, the more questions I have. The more I want to know, the more I lay awake at night looking at the ceiling thinking, what about this, God, and, and how does this fit together? And I don't understand this. And what we've been taught in church sometimes is to close those questions off or pretend you don't doubt. Pretend you've got everything figured out and just push the doubts to the side. But can we just be honest with one another? That doesn't work. That results in Steve Jobs stories, not the stories of the disciples here. That results in brilliant people, incredible leaders being told, don't ask those questions, just go your own way. As the church, as Christians, we have to learn to deal with doubt. And not just deal with it, but to say, God, what are you trying to teach us? What are we going through here? So if you're like me, if you're someone who struggles with doubt and has questions and and wants to know, how do I deal with this, what do we do? Let me give you a couple of ideas. These aren't laws. These are just ideas for working through some of those doubts. The first thing is it's okay to doubt your doubts. If you've doubted something in the first place, it's okay to turn around and doubt that doubt. Now you can understand why some of us are head cases. Because you think, so if you doubted the doubt, then you should doubt that you doubted the doubt. And then you don't sleep at night. Or they, you know, give you medicine and things like that. And you you think, how do you get into that situation? But the point is, the point is that very few of us believe something because we know everything about it. Or we believe something because it's absolutely obviously true and you have all this concrete evidence. The realization is that faith is not a blind leap into the dark. And sometimes we just told people, hey, close your eyes to the evidence, don't ask any questions, have faith and jump into the dark. But that's not faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's, it's trust. It's, 
I'm basing my life on something that has been shown to have all kinds of veracity, all kinds of truth, and yet I'm going to admit that I don't know everything, that I have questions, and that's okay. I'm going to continue to follow after Jesus in the midst of it. And also remember that more information doesn't automatically lead to worship. Sometimes we think, if this question was answered, if I could just figure out this one little thing, then I would be a follower of Jesus. Then I wouldn't have any more doubts. Do you know what happens when you get one question answered? You find four more that you don't know the answer to. And you just continue to go. And so more information, learning more things, is not the thing that will automatically lead to worship. What you find here in this verse is something that's an incredible example, maybe one of, the most, one of the most amazing examples of God's grace that we see in Scripture. Look what happens in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And then the beginning of verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. The fact that Jesus came to them in the midst of their doubt. He didn't tell them, go home. He didn't tell them, if you have doubts, you can't be one of my followers. He came to them in the midst of their doubt. Let's make this a place. Let's be people where it is safe for people to come and ask questions. This should be a safe place. If someone's curious about Jesus, but they don't really believe, or they have doubts, or they're not sure They shouldn't be afraid to come to church. But the reality is that that is the reality. That is the perception, at least, that if I have questions, I can't be a follower of Jesus because they obviously don't have questions. Except we all realize that's not the truth. We do have these questions. We do struggle with these things. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You can trust me. You can trust me as the Lord, you can trust me as the Savior, you can come after me, and I will come to you in the midst of your doubts. And so that first arrow, that first reality of our lives, is that we were created to be worshipers. Worshipers who trust Christ and follow after him. I put on your notes some actions and some words that worshipers do. The very first act of worship that we do as a follower of Jesus is this confession of salvation or this confession of trust. Some of you, this may have been praying with your parents. Some of you may have walked an aisle. If you grew up in a Baptist church or non-denominational church, it was you walked down the aisle to confess your salvation. For some of you, it may have looked different than that. But you do something with your words where you say, Jesus, you are Lord. You are Savior. You are in charge not me. And that's an act of worship. And then we can continue to worship. We worship with songs. We worship in sharing testimonies. We worship when we gather as God's people. We worship when we take the Lord's Supper. We worship when we wake up in the morning and say, God, I have no idea how I'm going to get through today, but I trust you, and I will worship you. And we teach worship when we tell our kids, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That may be one of the greatest acts of worship that you can do when you wake up tomorrow is say, God, today is from you. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Even though I want to be grumpy, even though I'm worried about today, I will worship you today. I will live my life toward you because of who you are. Even if I have questions, even if I have struggles, I will worship you. The second thing, so up and then in. Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Notice that Jesus says to make disciples. A disciple is simply someone who follows after Jesus, who is committed to Jesus. He doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say make church attenders. He says make disciples. And sometimes in Baptist church life and non-denominational church life, all we've wanted to do is get people to raise their hand and sign a piece of paper and say a prayer and attend church. And yet we realize that's not all that it means to be a disciple. Jesus says make disciples, and disciples are made as they're transformed from the inside out. We could manipulate people to take certain actions. You can try to drag people to church. You can try to guilt them into doing certain things. But true discipleship happens from the inside out. When you say, Jesus, I'm committed to you, change my life so that I will follow you. And you do this with your words and your actions. In words are things like Bible study, they're things like accountability, they're sharing with one another. In actions mean learning to live a holy life, learning to have Christian friends. We have a ministry here at First Baptist that we call InReach. InReach isn't a bad thing. InReach just means we get to know one another and we ask God to change our lives from the inside out. But then that leads to the last point. So up, in, out. That was almost like a dance move, but I just don't dance, so that wasn't, that wasn't bad. Up, in, out. I'll pretend that that was like a baseball signal, and then I'll feel better about it. So uh, it says in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That word, go. That word, all nations. That word, end of the age. All of those are Jesus' ways of telling the people, if you're going to be one of my worshipers, and if you're going to be one of my followers, it's not something that you can do staying here on this mountain. Being a Christian, having your life transformed from the inside out, by its very nature, has to be expansive. It has to move out. It's something that you do and you share with others. You serve other people in Jesus' name. You proclaim the good news. We become good news people in a bad news world. This is what it means to live out. And we realize, I realize in my own life, up, worship, oftentimes that comes pretty easily. There's some doubts, there's some struggles. In, if you're intellectual or you like to be with other people, you're like, I can do in. I can have friendships, I can study the Bible, I can do that. Out, though, becomes difficult. When in reality, it shouldn't. Because out should be outflow. It should be the natural overflow of our lives. Just like I said earlier that we often overcomplicate things, we often overcomplicate church. When in reality, it's worship God together, become more like Jesus, go out and live about it and tell other people. How do I become a Christian? I become a worshiper, a follower, and a missionary. I go up, I go in, I go out. We don't have to complicate it. Imagine, imagine being a part of a church. Being a part of a church that all they're committed to is worship, becoming more like Jesus, and then sharing that with others. All the junk that we go through, all those things that sidetrack us, all those things that take up our time, All we're committed to is worship, discipleship, 
missions. Imagine a life where you are free to say, I have some doubts. My life is full of struggles, but I worship God. I'm trying to become more like Jesus every day as he changes me. And I'm going to live for him, whether I go to work or school or vacation or a ball game or whatever I do. I'm just going to live for him. I'm going to serve other people, and I'm going to tell them the good news about Jesus. May God transform our lives so that we're able to live in that way. May he set us free to be his people, to be his Easter people who follow the Jesus way. Here in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And then Corey's going to lead us back through that song called I Will Follow. Seemed like a good idea to come back around and sing that again at the end of this text. Let me ask you to do something in response to God's word this morning. Ask yourself this. Am I worshiping? Am I putting myself in situations, Bible study, godly friendships, am I putting myself in situations where I become more like Jesus? And am I living that out? Up in out. Take a look at, your, look at your life. Is that something that you're doing? And if you say, you know what, I'd like to be a part of a church that's trying to do that. I would love to pray for you. I'd love to tell you more about what we're doing as a church here at First Baptist. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing in response to God's word this morning. God, thank you that the story of Christianity, the center of that is found in Easter, that Jesus died for us, And that he came back to life so that we could have life. To live it to glorify you. But God, thank you that Easter was never meant to be the end. It it was just the beginning. The beginning of what it means to worship. The beginning of what it means to follow. The beginning of what it means to be used by you. God, I pray as individuals, as families. God, I pray that there are dads and husbands here who can ask questions about their family to say, are we worshiping together? Are we praying together? Are we serving together? And not make it any more complicated than that. Just up and out. And God, I pray especially, if there are people here who are struggling with doubt, the terrible thing about doubt is sometimes we even feel guilty about that doubt. And then it drives us deeper into the doubt. The disciples worshiped, but they were doubtful, and Jesus came to them in the midst of that doubt. God, thank you for your grace that you come to us in our questions, you come to us in our struggles, and we look to you, and we find hope, and we find life, and we find freedom. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.